1: I think natural wine is simply a very belated response to people seeing the need to move beyond the traditional. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbar.
0: It's a great day when we can get an expert at the top of their game to join us in the studio, and writer and editor John Bonnet is just that in The Wine Game. In this action-packed episode, we talk about his monumental new book, the two-volume The New French Wine. We also talk about France as a source, but also a construct, and dive into some of his restaurant beat reporting at Resi, where he serves as a managing editor. We also talk about some of his work at Taste, including John's longtime obsession with the composed salad. Man, I hope you enjoy this great episode with John Bonet. John Bonet, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
1: Matt, thanks so much.
0: It's great to see you. I, I haven't seen you in a minute, and we're going to talk about Resi. We're going to talk about your new book. Uh, The new French wine. But first, I want to get a little bit into your background. You grew up um, in New York and Westchester. Uh, You know, what was food like in New York in in the 1980s? great era.
1: It was interesting in our house. I, um, My father was had an interesting career. He both trained as a chef, uh, but was also uh, a businessman. He was a banker um, and worked at a bunch of Fortune 500 companies. But um, right at the beginning of the 80s, he actually um, quit his job at Citibank and started a gourmet foods and catering business. And so growing up, He was always cooking, like cooking Mm -hmm. for real cooking, Um, and there was always wine at our house, and so we we started at a pretty high level, uh, and I was, you know, by the time he had started the business, I was probably not young, like old enough to legally work, but Mm -hmm. uh, old enough to do whatever.
0: You were stuffing some mushrooms on the weekends, sure, stuff like that.
1: There, I I literally have a reaction to styro peanuts because <laughs> um, there were a couple of years where he he had the contract to do the holiday gift baskets for IBM, yeah. and uh-huh. our entire basement was an ocean of packing peanuts. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's there, you know. So it was it was interesting, and and one of the things to to your question about New York is he was one of the early folks to really work on sourcing of pretty serious stuff and like. There was – that was the, – the early to mid-'80s was the first time yeah. that you could get, like, real baguettes baked in New and York. And Dean and DeLuca had kind of just opened around then, right? Well, so- and, and there was a place called JP's that was actually oh. um, that was actually created by the um, the owner uh, of Le Bun Soup. And it was, like cool. – he, o- he brought over a baker, I think. And so there was that. There was a place called New York Ice, which was the first place to do, like, really good sorbets. There was pasta and cheese, which eventually became mm. like Contadina packaged fresh Mm -hmm. pasta uh but so it was like get up at six in the morning on a saturday we'd drive you know into the city and pick up dry ice in the bronx and go pick up all of his sundries uh and you know he'd do catering gigs whatever so point being like we cooked for real at our house um and so i it was just always there for me same with wine it was just always there for me uh and you know it just i don't have this great story it was just osmosis now, the level of osmosis, I was going to say the same
0: term, and have you ever written about your father? It sounds like a character going from banking Gordon Gecko era to, like, quitting and then, you know, starting in this, like, new foodie
1: culture and, like, working in it. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I have here and there. Yeah. He, he shows up a, a couple times quickly in the book. Um, Wonderful. In, in memory. But, yeah, you know, um, that could be the next book. I know. I mean, I want to talk about your
0: exposure to wine. And and really, when did you first realize that wine had so many layers and was just such a ric-
1: rich text to write about? To write about? Um, that's, that's a good question. I mean, like I said, so wine was sort of there for me. Uh, growing up, I, you know, absorbed more than I really realized that I knew, especially when I got back to France and realized – There were these places that I had visited as like a 13-year-old that I hadn't really thought about. But forgot all about it, went off, did did the internet, did journalism, Mm -hmm. did lots of stuff. Uh, I got back into it in the early 2000s. I had moved to Seattle and was working for NBC and was like – that was that was the era when Washington wine started to really come up in the world. Oh, cool! Like, before I had left New York, I started buying. You know little bit of Bordeaux, just random things, you know, dabbling as you do when you reach your late twenties and yeah. start he, thinking get a little you, bit you of scratch. A, you should be a grown up, yeah. Get some scratch. Yeah. You were
0: you were like covering the airline industry for NBC, was that uh,
1: right? I was covering all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I I was the equivalent of their of, of MSNBC's page one editor. Uh, so you know, you you log on in the morning, yeah. and what you see is you know what what I started putting together at internet home
0: pages like yeah. like really like a moment in the internet culture
1: i mean you know that was 15 million page views a day so that was that was no BS.
0: No BS.
1: <laughs> and then and then just such a force in our
0: in our in our media like cycle because it was pre social media. So yeah. you had to go to that homepage. Exactly. It like told us cool cool background. Yeah. back to wine. You know, tell me a little bit more about this Washington State yeah. wine. So
1: so so was there, started to get into it and, you know, was going out and visiting all the wine regions and the wineries and everything was kind of going gangbusters and obviously started getting more interested in a broader range of wines as well and slowly was kind of sneaking it into my stories more and more. So I, <laughs> by that point I was like I – had, I had moved off of kind of hard news desk into uh, business reporting and was was covering the airlines, was covering travel, was starting to cover the food business a little bit and was like, huh, like, I can write about some wine and – wrote a few wine stories kept sneaking it in into other stories um did a like six month special report on methamphetamines and uh weirdly where people were cooking meth out in the Yakima Valley was not far off from both the hop fields and the vineyards
0: oh so, no shit so yeah. you were actually like catching uh, catching some
1: some new releases while you were like interviewing these yeah, subjects I'm just I'm gonna duck out and you know go taste this yeah. um so so finally I I went to my editor and just kind of suckered him into letting me write a wine column and that's how it started. Wow.
0: So the wine column at MSNBC, you partly that to working at the San Francisco Cron, right? You were you yeah. were the wine editor, you were the food editor as well and and you played, had many roles there. And that and that I'm sure uh informed the way your wine writing career kind of has blossomed into books and and everything you've done since.
1: Yeah. It was I mean MSNBC was a great platform. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, The Chronicle reached out, and uh, it was weird. I ended up with two job offers, and that was the one I, I mm. took. So who, what was the other one for? Food and wine. Okay. So. All right. What, what Could year? Could had a uh, 2006. I mean, both have pros and cons. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not an easy decision. My gosh. Um, so that's like the Ray Isle role. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it was ish. So lots of, lots of stuff has you sorry. Know, evolved. Sorry, listener. This
0: is like real baseball yeah,, hard shit. So let's go back yeah. to John. Welcome
1: to, welcome to the thrilling world of wine media. Wine media, uh, right. <laughs> but, so at the Chronicle, so yeah, I was the wine editor, chief wine critic, um, and co-edited the food and wine section for many years. Uh, and so – it was it was sort of the other great platform that anyone could ask for certainly if you're writing about wine and and this was the genesis of my first book which was the new california wine was being out there being let's just say a skeptic about the state of california wine in the early 2000s which was in a in my view a low place yeah uh and, but was changing and and so i was really fortunate to be there at a time when what would become, quote unquote, the new California wine. It's a catchy book title.
0: It's a great title. <laughs> when you say in the low place, how does the film Sideways
1: play into this, like, low point? Is it, like, is that, like, the lowest point? Sideways was, I, I don't even know if it was the lowest point because, <laughs> like, Sideways was Santa Barbara and Pinot. And yeah. it was, like, a, it was meant to be kind of the, the cowboys of you know of California wine Fair versus right. everyone sitting in their in their you know faux chateau in Napa, but it was just it was stylistically it was a point. I mean, what sideways captured was this weird boomer relationship to wine, yeah, and probably ultimately not a super healthy one. I think we can now say, um, but you know, it, yeah, it was it was just like everything was about sort of like big impactful in 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 New California wine. I called it big flavor, yeah. Uh, it was just. This more is more era. And to be fair, like, this wasn't just California. And one of the things I do talk about in the new French wine is, like, Bordeaux in particular went through this. But there were a number of regions that, um, that stylistically had this, this strange evolution. Mm-hmm. I think we'll come back to, like, the weird relationship
0: the millennials have with wine and maybe our current day. We'll get to that. Uh, spoiler, we'll talk about natural wine. But I want to really focus on the book, The New French Wine. It's two parts. It's big. Uh, it's just released re- like now, basically when we're recording this, it'll be out for a few weeks. It's going to take a while for, I think other listeners to pick it up and, and really absorb it. It's one of those books it's that literally
1: going to take a while for them to pick it to up. To literally pick it up. It's it'll like take
0: nine pounds. It's like maybe like, yeah, like you has to be like set one of your workout because it really is heavy. But I mean, I, I know some backstory just working here and we publish you, but I want to hear a little bit about how the idea started and I know Emily Timberlake plays into a role an editor former editor at 10 speed but like how did where did it start and where do we end up
1: so no surprise it started uh with probably a little too much wine <laughs> um so yeah so Emily was my um was my editor on New California and she was uh 10 speed press uh in the East Bay in San Francisco and so New California was out and we were just sort of bouncing around trying to figure out like what do I do next? I had this idea for a book called The New Old World and how like all of Europe was cool. uh, wow. was evolving in terms of its wine culture. Thank God I didn't do that considering what it <laughs> took just to get France out of the way. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we were we were at a wine bar in Oakland. We, you know, were one glasses of, you know, uh, of, of Gamay too far gone and she was like hey what about France and I was like sure that's a great idea I love it and <clears> it was that and then you know put together the the proposal and contract and all of it and um as as she has has told it on on the internet it's like she's like you'll be done in two years
0: yeah I mean standard kind of like yeah. book writing a, cycle like two years to write you know whatever yeah I mean a lot of work obviously but certainly not what it ended up being
1: correct uh, yeah, so um, so it took a little longer. I mean, that was 2014. Oh wow, when we signed the contract. Dang. Yeah, so we're like nine years, basically
0: about nine years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Emily has written for Taste Love. Emily and I just want her to write more. If you're listening to this, please pitch and let's talk. But Emily, um, write
1: more. I, I love
0: I love her writing. She's just so wonderful. But um, what's the thesis of the book? I feel like it's hard to go over all of the book. In this format, in podcasts, because I want to get to your work at Resi as well. But um, what's the thesis?
1: So the thesis is it's basically the title of the first chapter, uh, which is um, which is patrimoine or everything old is new again. Mm-hmm. Patrimoine is this this very particular French term. It's not quite patrimony, which even in English doesn't have a great definition. It's not history, but it's this sense of of kind of a, a shared cultural history. Mm. Um and in France it's it's extraordinary extraordinarily important because it it indicates that it's not simply your history. It's not even, you know, just sort of your your localized history, but it's a sense that whatever you're doing has its roots in a deeper culture. I mean it's literally
0: has roots Well, too. in the case of wine yes it yeah, literally, literally has, has roots, roots. But so but
1: so when when people talk about patrimon and wine, um, it is very much the sense of where you're growing this has had has had vines before for hundreds if not thousands of years, and so you know whatever you do is going to inevitably be seen in the context of what was there before uh, so the second part of the the chapter title um is uh it's really i mean that's ultimately the thesis, which is that you know th- this is not quote unquote new, new land. This is this is not a new place for wine, and yet in every single part of the country, like in every single wine region, there is complete change if Mm -hmm. not outright like revolution in terms of styles in terms of Mm. the way that the wine culture has evolved in terms of the way that the wines are perceived in terms of the farming in terms of climate change in terms of the the politics behind it and so this this is what i wish someone had told me over the 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 unsulfured (laughs) gamay back in oakland which is like you you think you know
0: but Mm -hmm. you don't know it's like um, i'm peeling an onion i mean let me ask you, you. So many topics you bring up. You said agriculture. I hear um, social economics. You talk. You talk about the zeitgeist. You talk about media. I mean, this is all the ways that the French wine has changed. Or is there a way to say that French wine has gotten better? Is that is that even possible in this conver- in this
1: conversation? I mean, I mean, yes, and that's easy. But that doesn't even really capture it. It's that it has transformed. Interesting. And works. so again, and it's not. It's not like oh, stylistically, people do blah, blah, blah now, or, oh, there's natural wine, or, you know, now, like, there's less oak, whatever it is. Like, the cultural transformations that have happened, and they're not uniform, uh, they really vary within each region, have radically transformed France, uh, or French wine in the past 25 years. But the thing to also acknowledge, and I did not want to write a deep cultural history, but I needed to to tap into this to some extent is France has also changed enormously in the past quarter century. Yeah. I mean, and we talk about
0: socioeconomics and politics there too. I mean, so I'm walking into Omnivore, I'm walking into Books Are Magic, I'm walking into Powell's and I'm looking at your book and I see it's not a book, it's a case. So there's two volumes here. Shining in the, you know, in its in its radiant blue. <laughs> I mean, and let's, let's shut out Lizzie, too, yeah. uh, the designer, who, who actually designed Food IQ, the book I worked on with Dan Holzman. I know. Um, as Lizzie a, Allen, amazing, yeah. amazing book design. Lizzie Allen, amazing work and, 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 and kind of harnessing all of this, this great shit. But like, tell us, when you're walking in you're seeing these
1: two volumes, what are these two volumes? So the two volumes, the first volume is the narrative, literally on the spine, the narrative. The second volume is the producers. Uh, hopefully self-evident uh the narrative is the story of everything that's Mm -hmm. happened uh both an omnibus story um and there's a chapter on every single region and then there's a fair number of interstitial chapters where there's one the new farming the new climate there is one on natural wine uh there is one somewhat esoterically but not so much when you get through the whole book uh on a guy named jules chauvet who a lot of people see as the father of natural wine uh and the difference between myth and reality and that's actually a a light a, a light motif that comes back a lot in the book which again to my point it's not just french wine it's france in general that where france is in 2023 is so radically different from the myth of france and french wine that i think both the french and everyone else has built up okay so you're seeing
0: the narrative starts that in in 2013
1: the narrative i'm trying to think i mean the narrative probably technically starts in like 2016 okay. but uh but i mean it's it's not meant to even drop a pin uh you know uh in the timeline but it's more looking at how let's go back to at least the 90s mm-hmm. and coming forward to today there is so much that has changed across french culture including wine that you can't you know the 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 way I, I talk about it a number of times in the book is the way that we the ways that we try to access the French yeah. myth, the, the myth of Provence, the the myth of kind of the you know tooling through the countryside with the plane trees on the side of the road on your yeah. little bicycle. I mean, Provence yeah. is
0: like was like the Tuscany. It's like the what we see in Hollywood, right? When
1: it comes to many parts of France, outside of Paris, of course. And, and it's I mean, you know, it, it has been well exploited by many writers of fiction and nonfiction uh, for a long time, to say nothing of art. Et cetera, cetera. Uh, but you know certainly within within gastronomy, Provence has this this mythic quality that a is sort of not true anymore, Uh, and you know there's um, I mean I think that literally the. I'm going to take a little bit of pride in this line. I'm not going to lie. Uh, In the Provence chapter was a million lavender sachets in a million tiny houses. A beautiful, beautiful line. But it's just, you know, like you have your Loci like you're you're all up in it. But it's, A, that's just not where Provence is. And to your point about socioeconomics, Mm -hmm. like you look at Nice and you look at Marseille and that's not, you know, Provence is not in that place anymore. But B, like it's, it is this myth, again, like somewhat out of the like the boomer era, somewhat out of like Chapanice and uh and uh, you know Richard only, although Richard's actually cantankerous enough that he probably had <laughs> fewer scales over his eyes than anyone else. Mm-hmm. But you think about like if you ever read the book Provence 1970 yeah. you know, this this uh Lucas Bar. Yeah right this yeah. this this coming together of you know of culinary greats in Provence like there was this thing that just defined in many ways the ways that uh, the, the way that Americans and and frankly the rest of the world saw France, not just Provence but in general, which is I'm not going to say none of it is true because the culture of France is extraordinary, but it's just it's a very different country, and we still you know e- even like friends who are going to Paris still have this thing of like oh I'm going to go and I'm going to you know sit in a cafe and blah 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 and I'm like you know this is it's like saying you're going to go to New York and you're going to only eat at like Katz's yeah. which love Katz's but that's it's definitely you
0: know. my top five To yeah, if I'm going to recommend it's going to be like, definitely yeah, there. but you're like
1: going to Times Square and going to Katz's is yeah. not actually no. what New York is and our there. listeners too I think relate to that
0: maybe like some people will literally go to Times Square and Katz's but I think our listeners are more sophisticated in that sense um, but you you mentioned you know you're going to Bushwick you know you're everyone going, listening yeah. you're going to Bushwick you're going to a James Murphy owned establishment and likely a James Murphy concert uh, which is good or bad, depending on your age. Um, you bring up Paris, we, though. We, we've just said too much about both of us. We really have. Um, I, I think our listeners know where I stand on that. Let's talk about Paris. You, you live there part of the year, right? I mean, you have like real roots there. And it, you, you, you bring up Provence, and, and it makes a lot of sense because it really is, especially in this narrative of wine, really informs the way we think about France um, as consumers of French things and Francophiles. But <laughs> Paris, on the other hand, um, it's always hard for me to understand if it's like hot or not.
1: It's like I feel Paris is always up or down. Paris stands outside of the realm of fashion. It's so true. It's. it's I love it's, that you answered it I very mean, quickly. I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just I'm pulling out all the cliches today. I mean, yeah. we will always, in fact, have Paris. Yeah, and and. To be to be to be clear, when you are thinking about making a real a real estate purchase there, <laughs> you start to think about, like, is this going to be somewhere that's suddenly um, kind of a hot mess in five or 10 or whatever years? And the thing is, it doesn't matter. It's Paris. People yeah. like, you know, I, I I am sure there is something, but I cannot imagine what there is that would make it any less of a global destination.
0: I guess my point I was trying to make was that in terms of wine, I feel like Paris became, like everyone went to Vervolet and Canal Saint-Martin and like had some bomb wines and like meaning everyone like non-French people and like tourists. Yeah. And I felt like wine in, in Paris and in gastronomy in Paris in the past decade while you're writing this book has certainly seen some highs, but also there's always people snarking that it's done. I'd just like to get your sense. I mean, yeah, I love that face you made. It's so great. <laughs> I, and this is not straw man. I feel like I actually have people tell
1: me this shit. I I mean, so there's, I don't want to say there are two Parises.
0: Please, but, but, there are. But, but there's,
1: a, there, there's at least two Parises. The thing is that, in a way, and again, this was important for me to talk about in the book, and and I did, um, uh coming actually out of a an article I did for Punch, um few I don't know, whenever that was, somewhere yeah. in the misty it, past. Yeah. Uh but uh you know, classical French gastronomy as it exists, the, the Etoile, the you know, the Michelin-starred restaurants mm-hmm. and all that fancy stuff in the first uh, yeah. and, and white tablecloths, et cetera, et cetera that's pretty done i mean i i don't even i don't even know how to get my head around it anymore it's just it is this weird uh vestige mm-hmm. like this vestigial remnant of the old understanding of france and not even not even really like a timeless one but just this thing that very much came out of came out of maybe pre-war to post-war France where this was very much viewed as the, the quote-unquote pinnacle of mm-hmm. uh, of of gastronomy. I mean, maybe it was like in like the early 2000s,
0: like Cote Bosque and like these old school New York. I mean, early two thousand, like let's talk 1980s, I 1990s.
1: Guess you're right. Uh, probably more than yeah. 80s and 90s. And but 90s. so, you know, those those are, I mean, vestigial is actually probably the right word in the sense that like they're still there. They still exist in their own universe and they... They compete in their own little world, but mm-hmm. – but, and this isn't even new anymore, but Paris has so moved on to what the French call bistronomy, yeah. but essentially where you're doing great cooking, multiple influences in what usually is kind of a small storefront bistro. And that has been transformative to Paris in the sense that you, you find – the best cooking in Paris and some of the best cooking in the world in these, in these little 30 seat restaurants. And so that's why it's like, well, Paris can't be done. It's like Paris in the sense of, I'm going to go to the first or, you know, and go to Le Doyen, Mm -hmm. whatever, like you have fun with that. But to your point of Verbalais, it's now almost a full generation that, you know, travelers under 60 have been going to East Paris and exploring this this very 21st century view of what French cooking is.
0: Which, you know, bistronomy movement, um, absolutely exciting. To be clear, there's never a bad time hanging out in Paris for the food. I mean, like, let's get real. I just think that there was like a larger narrative maybe trying to snipe. And John, you've, you've really articulated it. I want to move on to broader wine questions. Um, we've had some great folks on, we've had Jancis Robinson, Alice Firing, Talia Bayoki, Jordan Michaelman, Andre Mack, like really great. And now you, and I, I feel like I've just learned so much from all these wine professionals and, and writers. I've asked them all essentially this question, walking into a bottle shop, what should we be excited about as like a general wine consumer?
1: This assumes that this is a good bottle shop, and it's not like, as it is in New York State, you're going to pick up a bottle of Smirnoff uh, at the local, quote-unquote, bottle shop.
0: Great ground rules. This yeah. is
1: a reputable
0: place yeah. that you are very comfortable buying yeah. wines
1: at. So I think the big thing for me would be the diversity. And, you know, France, California, Austria, Georgia, wherever, doesn't even matter, Um some of it is just the the types of wine, the styles of wine, the places that they come from, the fact that there is ambient quality from all of all of these places, and there's people doing different things. My my analogy uh, back when I was at the Chronicle was like wine was moving in closer to the craft beer realm where like you know it can be it can be freeform jazz it's it doesn't have to be we do one thing same thing every year same you know one one vintage blah 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 so like even 10 years ago what's available now and considered canon and you know when I was writing for punch we talked about this a lot we called it the new mainstream Mm -hmm. just didn't exist so I think just the sheer diversity of what's there um with that comes the quality of what's there which is to say and and just to use france as a prism if you look at the at the wines that are of extraordinary quality now that we didn't think of that way 10 or 15 years ago meaning Muscadet, mm. where there's now 10 crews uh, of Muscadet. You can talk about single single kind of villages. They're not quite villages, but, uh, you know, the different terroirs of Muscadet, it drinks like Great Chablis. Mm. drinks, you know, it's not like cheap oyster wine, which is what it was a decade, 15 years ago. Beaujolais, same thing. It's basically the new Burgundy, now that nobody can actually afford Burgundy. And that's like, an
0: economic choice, and it's, 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 it's we've all benefited from... Enormously. These, these producers have actually gotten their shit together, and, and the the wines are great in some of these regions and, that
1: Yeah. And so you, you think about like you you went into you went to a wine shop 20 years ago, you wanted Beaujolais, like maybe there was some Deboeuf, maybe there was, mm. you know. The nouveau releases, I guess everyone was into that right. stuff in November. And, and so you look at the way that like completely got thrown out the window and now people are talking about specificity, single parcels, mm. uh, the extraordinary quality of producers. They're talking about Beaujolais, Beaujolais the way that people talked about Burgundy in the 80s. And why do we see Morgan everywhere?
0: I feel like I'm, I'm like an Instagram, I've been drinking Morgane when I used to drink back in the day, but man,
1: but Why? Uh, if you want to know the reason that the the Jules Chauvet chapter is in the book uh, <laughs> that helps to explain it um you know it's it's where you know a number of pioneers in Beaujolais who really a created a quality change there but b also were some of the progenitors of natural wine yeah. came from so yeah it's it's everywhere but so it's you know it's it, not even France like you know you could look at in galicia you could yeah. look at verdicchio from the Marque uh, or austria like you look at the way that we talk about Champagne today in terms of individual vignerons and individual villages and sites. We didn't have these conversations 10 years ago. Even, even champagne 10 years ago, like you were lucky if people were talking about grower champagne and maybe there was mm-hmm. – you, you knew Cedric Bouchard and you knew that he had a few different parcels. And, and grower means you just know where you, – you actually know. It, it's, it's, it's someone champagne. who's growing the grapes and making the wine yeah. versus let's say Dom Perignon where they're buying a ton of grapes yeah, and, come from and, many pla- and crafting it.
0: All ah, right. Well, I mean not bad product. I love John. This is so great to see your face because <laughs> I'm like. So, you, I mean, what I'm, you don't get, I'm with the so podcast. out of the game, and I'm uh, just like Dom's drinks well, and you just like I absolutely. Mean, you know,
1: Dom is a, a perfectly decent commercial champagne. Uh, whether you think it is at the level that it is marketed at, I. I leave it's I'm I'm throwing taste as the beholder, you know, in the eye of the beholder.
0: what I love about your writing, like you will go Lester Banks and then you will go John Pirelli's. Like you'll you'll go both ways. Like you I love it so much. You like will be you'll burn shit down, but then you're very and very yet. kind and even <laughs> <Yeah>. like John. <laughs> Sorry. Music references. You mentioned uh you, you hint at the word natural wine when we talk about Morgan and and I just uh Talia and I talked about this, I'll link to this in the show notes. Great conversation with her about it. Um we could certainly have a long conversation but why are we so obsessed with this this phrase this 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 terminology of natural wine
1: i wish i knew to be honest i mean it took a long long time to figure out where natural wine should show up in this book and it shows up all over because i at this point have visited more quote unquote natural producers than most people have mm-hmm. um never with the intent of I'm going to go write a book about natural wine or whatever, and I would get a question every single time, like, "Oh, your book's going to be about Vennaventura." It's like, well, eh, not entirely, but where I landed was in trying to find an analogy, and I went through many of them. I went through many of them with Talia trying to find uh, trying to find where my head was at and uh, the, the analogy that's in the book, and I'm truly going to shorthand this um, because everyone should go read it in the book, clearly. Yeah, no doubt. Um, is... No, for real, you should pick up the book. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, like for real, like you hear John talk like this. He's an incredible writer. Not boring. It's not, bo- not, not boring. So just to break in.
1: Which is good. They may, they, they, they may think it's boring after the analogy I'm about to Okay, it great. But, Finish it. <laughs> uh, but my analogy was, was really to the birth of modern art and the Salon de Refusé in 1863. And this was, you know, there was the academy and there was the refusé and the refusé Mm -hmm. were not, not admitted by the jury to the official Paris salon. So they, Napoleon III allowed them to have their own off salon, which everyone thought would sort of you know, mock and humiliate them. Kind of in the bushwick of Paris at the time, like kind of like off, Actually, off the grid. Yeah. Well that's what I thought, but as it turned out, they were basically in the same place. Oh wow. It was like, you know, you could go to like, mm. you know, you could go to the official wing or you could go to like It was you like know, Freeze and it was like a pop-up at yeah. like the off off the corner of Freeze, but still in right, pretty good. Yeah. Spot. So it's I mean, and it's it's funny because now like so much of the art world has modeled itself in yeah. a way after that. Yeah. But the analogy being that this was this was this was the the establishment trying to cast out something that was different, which, of course, I mean, and I asked the question in the book, well, who won? you're like, well, if you look at the trajectory of modern art, um, Manet, uh, Van Gogh, Monet, Picasso, on straight through to, to Richter and everyone else today, uh, you know. It's safe to say that Progress 1 and uh, William Adolphe Bougereau, mm. uh, who was sort of the great Academy painter. With Ragonar. His, you know, with his – well, yeah, with the, the nymph orgies and everything yeah. else. Like, you know, they, they faded away into obscurity because taste evolved. Yeah. And so I think natural wine is simply a very belated response to people seeing the need to move beyond the traditional.
0: Just going to give you a little applause there
1: because it's it's as close as it's gotten for me.
0: So thank you. That was really smart and it, it makes sense. And I'm hearing, you know, it's not a movement. It's not a moment. It's It's just the future that
1: wine is made in in its way i would say that the elements of natural wine are the future people now understand so much more about asking questions about viticulture and farming they under they ask they know more about asking questions sometimes the wrong questions um like you know why is there sulfur in this wine Hmm. let me tell (laughs) you uh but the fact that people are now asking questions about this in the way that, again, maybe, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, or if that, people were starting to do about food and, you know, farm to table came up, all of this. But the fact that there is now this sense of expectation to understand all the steps of wine, where it comes from, that is what natural to me has brought. Yeah, just like transparency
0: and education and asking the right questions. Yeah.
1: So, which is, I mean, which is hilarious now when, you know, you go and you see, oh, we have a wine list full of natural wines. I'm like, but, but do you? Yeah. And and not even like, cause I'm like, well, that's conventional, that's conventional, but just like, you know, like what, what, what's the thought process? What, you know, when, and, and I get it, you know, this is, um, as everything in, in gastronomy is cursed to do, like it goes from good idea to marketing term yeah. in about three years. Uh, but, um, but it's, you know, even if people have a very fuzzy and, often bad understanding. Mm-hmm. I think that there, what is going to come out of it is this remarkable growth and maturing mm. of, of the wine industry. Yet the Salad Composé has not
0: taken off, and it is quite the beautiful idea. We'll get to that at the end, but I have a few more wine questions because you're here, and I just want to know, in general, how can we be better wine drinkers? How can we
1: be—and better meaning drinking better, but also just better citizens— Sure. Um, by the way, there there were about you know a thousand people that logged off the moment you said salad composé. I so. know
0: salad composé, and linking to that in the show notes. I know, yeah. right? It's it's really the book. The salad composé
1: book will come we'll, out. We'll John. we'll get there. We'll get yeah. there. But, My but, next but, project. But yeah, the, um, the better wine drinking. Being a better talk. wine drinker. I mean, I I actually don't think it's hard. Um, you know, there's a million pieces of advice about you know take this class, study this book. Great book called the New Wine Rules. Highly yeah. recommend. Um, tells you everything you need to know. Um, Wonderful book. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's sorry. really and it's, it, you can put it in your put it in your backpack yeah. and
0: not like feel like you're doing like a stairmaster. Yeah, um,
1: you know. Well, versus the versus the new book versus the new of course. Um,
0: I'm saying versus the yeah. new book, which is a bit of a, a doorstop in yeah. the best way. But
1: possible. um, but but really, what it comes down to is being curious and being a curious consumer. And I I suspect that that sounds trite, but it's just it's like. You know, try to understand specifics. Interrogate yourself. Ask why you drink the things that you yes. have drunk. Maybe you drink right now. Are you like? Where do your Where do your beliefs about wine come from? And 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 poke at them. And and it's interesting. I you know there's, um you were you were mentioning millennials, and I would say it it probably goes beyond that as well. But you know wh- one of the things about where we've landed in the, the media landscape and the social media landscape in particular is, you know, we, everything is now a totem. Everything is, is, everything is meant to have a little moment of fetish around it and, uh, which isn't bad necessarily, like, you know, there's, there's, there's value to that. But at the same time, there, there really has been a diminishment of curiosity. Yeah. Um, probably because every one of us now has literally the world of information at our fingertips some of it correct.
0: It's dulled us for sure. I mean, yeah. it's dulled our, our interest in things when we can have everything at the same time, right?
1: Yeah. But, but I think, so, you know, how to be a better drinker? just, you know, like buy different things, ask lots of questions, ask why you like things, ask why you don't like things. I mean, I, you know, I again had this weird osmotic, you know, sort of education in wine, but but all it was when I started to get interested was just asking questions, and everyone's like, mm-hmm. "Oh, well, you're a sommelier? No, I'm not a sommelier. Like, you know, did you take the the W set or you know, study to you know, get a certification, whatever?" I'm like, "No, like, I just like drinking wine, and yeah. I'm you know, and I'm sort of nosy." And, yeah,
0: and you have an inquisitive kind of background in your career, like running the homepage of
1: MSNBC. I mean, yeah. so so it's like I I I yeah. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to sound like reductivist, but it's, no. it's not more complicated than that. I mean,
0: I think interrogating yourself is, like, the number one thing I just took away. I mean, I think being curious is great, too, but, like, thinking, like, why do I like that Gamay, or why do I like that Vino Verde? Why do I like... Or is it a matter of why do I like the number that's on the screen when I'm checking out? Yeah. Because that's another thing you have to, like, keep in mind. Like, somebody's
1: wine drinking is like, I like value. I, that's what I like. Yeah. Look, And it's, uh, you know, I... I I have gone through the full arc of ranting about why industrial <laughs> wine sucks. And, you know, and I'm like, I mean, it's all still there. Like it's, you know, I I wouldn't say I've necessarily moved away from any of that. But I'm also just like, you know, when 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 wine people sort of, you know, get up in themselves, <laughs> I I tend to like to remind folks that what we should be thinking about is white claw because uh, because, you know, if you want people to like wine, you're going to have to provide a context because if they just want to drink, like hard seltzer is there for them now. RTD is there for them now. Yeah. Like, you know, you can pop open a Mai Tai in a can, you know, have at it. So, you know, n- none of which, like, you know, n- again, like none of which is necessarily bad. Although, just to like, say,
0: NA too is there. Yeah. NA, at their heels.
1: Sure. If you want to love wine, then. Uh, this is like you know Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Like if you want to love wine, then you just have to love wine, and, and in order to do that in a healthy relationship, you have to ask yourself questions. Love that. You were JetBlue's wine
0: consultant. I, I absolutely fascinating role. What do we what what like what? Give us some like information about drinking um, on a plane. Like what did you learn when you started working with an airline about about behavior, about what people like, what people what you need to serve.
1: I you know I wish that I had I wish that I had been handed a a deep stack of market research yeah. which you would think yeah. given the the risk averse places that airlines are yeah. with good reason um, that you know that we would play it safe but honestly my mandate there was to to not play it safe and to originally it was to build a program around the new California um, and then we expanded it but you know the in the end it was basically look. This was especially for, for mint, which is their business class. Like this is supposed to be a different business class. We want a different wine program. And, you know, there's lots of things about your taste is dulled and, you know, this is that. That's why the food is salty. It's why I like mm-hmm. never get on a plane without packets of hot sauce. Mm-hmm. Um all kind of true. Yeah. But like but 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 really it, it was just a matter of I wanna put really good quality wine on here um our costs were exponentially more than pretty much any other domestic airline because we were often buying direct from producers and so it wasn't like you know can i get it for 250 a bottle it was you know these were bottles that would be 30 to 80 dollar bottles whole retail and we were we were buying them at wholesale and sometimes at a discount but you know but this 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 program cost yeah. JetBlue money, but... It,
0: it was like a lost leader, it sounds like. Yeah, but it,
1: but it was also, you know, we're going to put Turley's Infidel on board, mm. and there's, you know, there's a lot of people who, seeing that wine, which they think they can only get in a restaurant, that sends a very specific message. We were the first people to put a rosé on board, which wasn't, like, wasn't even a huge thing. I was just, I would think it we'd literally, like, sitting around talking, being like, well, what if we, like, it's spring, it'll be summer, like, what if we put a rosé on board? And it was like, well, sure, and, and now, of course, it's funny because everyone has Rosé on board. Yeah. And they're in cans now. I mean. Right. And I mean, you know, so it's, it's actually interesting now because you can drink much better only yeah. because, yeah, because cans and RTD have made it mm-hmm. much easier. But like, you know, it, it was just it was literally just looking at what had become very much a, a bottom line dollars and cents uh, approach to that type of service and saying what if we did it differently? Yeah.
0: Do you think you'll get back in that game? You never know. Yeah, F- phone lanes are open. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Resi. You're a managing editor there. Resi, we know, is the app that gets us into restaurants or doesn't get us into restaurants. It, it just depends on the day and the mood. But what is your goal as running editorial? I I love it. You- we share a lot of writers. I think the work is 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 excellent. Uh, it's re it's very like of the moment. Obviously rooted in restaurant culture. Um, but tell me a little bit more about
1: how content works on this thing that we think just gives us reservations. Of course. Um, and I should say, um, to be clear, I, I do not speak for Resi, capital R, Resi. I speak for myself. Wow. This is like those uh, gambling ads on podcasts. And, yeah. We to, like, and, and, um, and we have a remarkable editorial team including an amazing e- uh, editorial director. Um, but, Who's that? Let's give this shout out. Uh, Paolo Lucchese. Yeah. Paolo. Uh, right on. Uh, Former colleague at the Chronicle, definitely. Um, Chronicles are our great pipeline. It sounds like a
0: yeah, yeah a little bias there. And Ben Leventhal has been on the show. He was a founder. Yeah, I don't think he's with the exactly. company anymore, but he's uh, um, and
1: and and you know, and Ben, who also founded Eater, is a large part of the reason that editorial is is baked into Resi's definitely, DNA. Definitely, definitely. Um, so it's funny you mention the app because the app is a part of the Resi experience, but uh, the website is actually a big part of the Resi experience. Um, same booking capability, but the website is really infused all over the place with. Editorial, uh, including uh, one of the things that I oversee, which is uh, the monthly hit list, uh, which we have in. 19 markets 20 markets um and that's you know each month 10 restaurants some on resi some not on resi and that's always been that way love that that yeah. i did not know that actually so yeah. that's actually very important and it's love that. again like it's it's uh you know i i'm on the ramparts basically every month just being like <laughs> you know and, and sometimes even to our writers being like you know i i get it like you you know you 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 know who signs your paycheck Fair enough. But um but some of it in terms of, of really building a robust and a legitimate editorial program there was saying like we have to acknowledge that there is a bigger world and the goal of Resi, you know, ultimately is to connect people with restaurants they love. Yeah. And so some of that is gonna be curation and recommendations. And even when we, you know, like our 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 premium sort of membership tier, which is global dining access, like we do the same thing. Uh, you know some sometimes things will be easier to get into than others but it's also saying this is you know we're here to get you to a restaurant you love yeah and and this is really important this isn't about fine dining it's about great
0: dining yeah i mean that's what the resi um ethic is if you're a user or power user you're you're definitely not only getting you know three star or, th- or whatever we want to call it like higher end or even, whatever yeah, the fuck you call it. Uh,
1: but but some, some of it is, just, is, is literally just like, look, it, it could be a taco truck. It could be a pop up. It could be, you know, it could be a bakery. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, there's great, great things that you are going to love in all forms. Most of them, honestly, and to, to the point about Paris and the HLA and versus East Paris, like West versus East Paris, like great dining today is not fancy. No. It's, it's just, it could be
0: higher than the number you want to pay. We'll get it. that's all we've talked about a lot. If you want, if
1: you're, if you are a fan of bro, (laughs) Makase, the world is your oyster. I love it. Let's talk about booking
0: though. And you are speaking for yourself Uh, as a long time, uh, restaurant goer and an expert in the field. It feels like it's really, really, really hard to book a table right now. How do we do that? How do we actually make it easier On ourselves,
1: that is. Sure. Um, So there's – I mean, we we spend a lot of time asking that question. We have a a series called The One Who Keeps the Books," which is literally talking to the person who is managing – uh, managing the book at the front of the, the house. Nine hundred and fifty in the
0: wait list for some restaurants. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Well, and and so you know, some of it is very straightforward. You know, the notify tool, which is part of Resi, is is valuable, and you have to. I, I swear, you just have to like trust in it at some point. It's so
0: fire. I mean, like, yeah. let's get real. The no, it's the best thing about Resi is the is the notify button. It's just truly the best. So. Don't tell Allison Roman. She uh <laughs> doesn't like it. She yeah, is a skeptic. Yeah. See, we did talk about that. But um <laughs> I I I and I think you're right that there is uh definitely a, a a skepticism when you don't hit like the four or five times you hit notify. But I think you're gonna hit more times than not.
1: Yeah. And and so you know, if I if I take a step back from that, like my real advice is, you know. Restaurants are in a weird place. We've come out of three years of a pandemic. Uh labor, you know, yeah, the labor, the labor shortage is real, the supply chain is real. It's just, you know, we we all want to get back out and live the twenties of the 21st century. Um so like it's not hard. Uh, you know, you need to be flexible. Uh you need to probably be okay with going early, maybe sitting at the bar. Uh, and, like, do, do you need, like, I'm going to have a table because I'm having a birthday, mom's in town, whatever. Uh, or are you just like, whatever, I, I really want to go eat at SEMA. So how am I going to make that happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, 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 and candidly, like, I, I wish I could say that this was a new thing. But I think back to when I was in San Francisco in the late aughts and Nopa was my favorite restaurant in the world. And I would have to do the same thing. Like, if I wanted a seat, I had to go at 448 yeah. and get in line to like grab a bar at the at bar grab a seat at the bar at five and like that was that was my thing. So I'm like, you know, none of this is none of this is, is reinventing the wheel. I remember
0: being in college and, and Latoile was the restaurant in Madison, Wisconsin, yeah. and I remember waiting on the sidewalk to get in for that later that night to get a book. Yeah. To get in the book. Yeah.
1: Um and, and the one other thing, and this this is just to bring it back to France, of course. Sure. This is a a, a lesson that you learn by actually being in Paris uh, for more than kind of a week when you start to get used to the the rhythms of life. There is the notion of being a regular is the single most valuable thing that you can do in terms of creating a relationship with dining. And I know, you know, we all have zero attention spans. We want to like go out, see what's new, see, like, you know, see what's grammable that particular second. But, like, creating that relationship, and especially now, is going to pay endless dividends. And um, I would say, you know, the thrill of constantly dashing to the new place at some point becomes a little bit less thrilling. And you like having a sustained relationship mm. with a great restaurant. And it's just a matter of building it. And I would say with with a very small number of exceptions, like almost every restaurant wants to create that because they want to know when you walk through the door. They want to know that you are going to keep supporting them and that you're there and that you uh you you like what they do and you are you're going to yeah. support them. This is this is all seems again like totally redundant. Uh but it's it's true. Like the, the rules do even now, even in, you know, everyone has to write the no one can get a reservation story. Like, even in 2023, the rules haven't changed.
0: Yeah, it's true. Good point. Can't forget about France. Can't forget about the salad composé. There we go. You're right. Once, what the French call the salad composé, the composed salad, was an essential part of any restaurant or dinner party menu and a foundational pillar in any French chef's oeuvre. Okay. Have we lost the plot on the salad composé, Jean Bonnet?
1: I don't think so. Good. I. Uh, I actually yes. To to you won your your story yeah. has netted exactly yeah my results. My, 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 my taste essay on twenty eighteen uh, twenty nineteen yeah, whatever clearly pivoted the entire culinary world to to go back to salad ah. um yeah uh, but so honestly to um you know just keep pulling all the the you know the old ones out of the 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 okay. closet we are in the salad days uh, <laughs> which is to say if you. If you look at where, like, most New American cooking is, could be red sauce Italian, like the chopped salad is having a moment, and I'm here for it. Yeah. Um. It could be, you know, you look at, like, the, you know, lentils and roast vegetables and, you know, and labneh, uh, or even the fact that Middle Eastern is so hot right now, and like, you... The expectation. Sell the team, yeah, like like yeah. laser wolves sell the team, exactly. Huge. Like so, I mean, it's really fascinating. And you take that, you take like tin fish. Um, the way I was I was describing it last night to someone is that um, now is the the now is the true glory days of the garde manger. Yeah, to talk about the old French system. This was this was like the person who had to do the cold cold station. Apps, yeah. yeah, and like it's it's amazing because you know there's so much of cooking right now. Again, labor costs like, you know, post pandemic. Um uh, maybe camp, having all a whole
0: kitchen, maybe like our
1: new regulation where gas is gonna be banned in New York. City. Right. So it's I mean, the, you know, people are eating tons of this stuff in, yeah. in all sorts of forms across across cultural references, across types of cuisine, you know, all of it. And and so it's it's fascinating because what what was my point in the essay, which was that, you know, this this great sort of cold part of the meal, which was extraordinary and was a very important part of the progression and went away during the kind of, you know, fancified dining of the mid-century, is now back in like a somewhat different context. Although someone I'm sure will bring back, you know, all of Escoffier's great recipes, mm-hmm. but, but it could be, you know, could be Vietnamese, it could be Thai, it could be, like I said, you know, Italian chopped salad, whatever it is um, – you see that it is now a back to being an intrinsic part of dining in 2023 to say nothing of, which was again in the essay, to say nothing of sweet green, which I think everyone thought was going to kind of come up and down and, you know. Everyone was sitting at home in their sweatpants and no one's going to eat sweet green. Sweet green is killing itself. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, I think it's different from like the 90s when salad was a health thing and and really a fad. Like I think people have made peace with salad for dinner, salad for dinner. Like <laughs> yeah. this, this is this is this is a really fun part of dining.
0: Yeah, and sa- and I think like the salad books that have come out in the past couple of years have been really nice too. And I feel like uh, we're going to maybe revisit that topic. I don't think you can write for a taste because of your role at Resi. I would ask I you I probably write for a taste. Okay, well let's let's yep. let's get a part two of that. It's, that the, 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 the question is, do I have time for? A no, I I know you, know, know you don't have time there. now. Um, I can't let you go without giving us three restaurants we should go to. This is just off the dome places that you think we. I know you you're giving me a face of how the f- why are you asking me that? But this is, this is the question I actually needed to. Prepare. Pair. I know, John, and I did not give you this in the prep, but I, I just off like you say, Sema that that came out of your your dome. What, give us just three names that are popping around. Let's just focus on New York City. We have a lot of our listeners are are visiting the city um, this spring and summer. So where should they go?
1: Yeah, um, I mean Sema slash Damaka, yeah. um, remarkable like transformational Indian cooking. Masala Walla and Sons as well, which is in my neighborhood. Yeah,
0: that talk about Rezi. You can't get you can't get of that <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> uh, and,
1: and if anyone thinks that I have you know nah. some special magic, let me assure you uh i am i am in the fight along with the rest of y'all Great place. um but um i would put you know a- any of uh any of unapologetics um restaurants on that list um i would put red hook tavern which i wow an oldie yeah I, relative oldie um love you know that. and it's just like i i love that they are so focused on exactly what they do yeah um which is make a very good hamburger very good hamburger like favorite shrimp cocktail ever I think and remarkable wine list and it's just like you know they I love that they are they've sort of doubled down in the Alaska cocktail which is a very specific choice Mm. um and, and with that, I'd actually sort of draw a dotted line to Gus's chop house, which I put oh. in, in a similar range.
0: I've not made it out to my old neighborhood. I have yeah, not made it it's, to Gus's. Um, cool. It
1: is fantastically good. This is the, the uh, folks who have Popina, which is also great, but yeah. like doing a quote unquote chop house, which is not a steakhouse, um, but is, uh, I think, their view of what, like, you know, a, a meat a meat-forward-ish uh, restaurant. Can you give us beef. one in Manhattan? Can you just do it? Uh, well, there was Sema. So Oh,
0: yeah, Sema. You, um, you brought up. Yeah, yeah, right. Because
1: uh, the one other I was going to mention was St. Jules Ver, um, which I truly, like, I love what Alex and team are doing yep. there. A um, little bit more fish-focused. Um, but Manhattan... Um,
0: I'm like you because I, I definitely uh, would always say places in my neighborhood, We your, your name in, spots in my old neighborhood, but it's just how we dine, you know?
1: So... This will not be a huge surprise, and I feel like I'm preaching to the choir uh, in suggesting that anyone go to K-Town, which is still a pretty remarkable place. And I, I truly love the way that Korean food has has evolved and come up in New York in the past five five yeah. eight years, and so I, I will give sort of two as as not even counterpoints, but like they do similar things in slightly different ways. One is Attaboy, which uh, JP and Elia are remarkable, and uh, you know they they've been transformational, and I think getting people to understand the the depth of Korean cooking. Mm-hmm. And Jua, yeah, Jua. which similar place. A little bit more, a uh, little bit more focused in its concept, but uh, both again sort of pursuing this this neo Korean concept, K Town adjacent. Yeah. But in truly, I think you know, if if you come to New York to see where food is at its best, where the future is, those are restaurants along it, Like I said, with with Sema and the the unapologetic yeah. posse. Like I think those so encapsulate. The, the future of american food i
0: love that definitely a thesis in our upcoming book korea world i must say yeah uh, korean, I, korean food I, in new york i want to hear about your next yeah <laughs> no but let's get to that question we ask all guests on taste podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget meaning you have all the money in the world to travel to drink wine to maybe not drink wine to make salad what would that book be john didn't i just do that like, I
1: mean the, the book that never ends. I think it's true. <laughs> um, you had a budget, though. Uh, my budget was: <laughs> I'm just going to keep spending money and go deeply into debt. Uh, it was you know, like I do six not, figure, but I mean beyond. Yeah, I, I do not recommend it. Yeah, um, let's I, I, just say let's just say that the 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 advance has been spent.
0: The advan- yeah, and you're getting a few more checks at some point in the
1: priorities. Um so it's funny. Um the 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 dream wine book that I've wanted to do for a long time which will not not happen and I've pitched it whatever is the new Australian wine. And uh mostly because like everything that's interesting in wine is happening there and it's happening in a different context it's 8000 miles away from anything else. Yeah. But there's There is a deep narrative there that I would love to explore, but, uh, you know, I am, I live in a commercial world and I Hmm. can accept where sales of Australian wine are now. Um, there's a part of me that would love to immerse myself in Japan. I know I would never come out again. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure what book is in that. Um, and so where I kind of land and I am clearly insane for saying this Mm. is there's a part of me that wants to go back and do for french food what i just did with wine which is to say everything that i've said about how france is transforming and how france as a as a as an anchor of cuisine in the world um is 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 crucial i really want to explore that. And I, and I got to do some of that for the book, but you know, ultimately you actually have to write about the thing you're supposed to write Mm -hmm. about. Um, and there's just, there's so much there. Like if you read Lauren Collins, New Yorker piece on, on the French tacos, like there's, there's so much that I, I have yet to see someone really like get, get their hands into. Um, that said, um, like probably the only, Truism that's more true than never get involved in a land war in Asia is never right about France, and I know that now.
0: John Bonet, thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. That was really fun. Hi Matt. Hey Eliza, what's up?
2: Not much. Just wanna talk to you about three things, if that sounds cool.
0: I love when we talk about three things. I actually have more things to talk about you, like seven things, eight things, but we'll go we'll stick to three. I'm
2: gonna cut you off after three. <laughs>
0: okay. It's it's good for our listeners. Okay.
2: Can I start with my first thing?
0: I mean, I think you should.
2: I've been so excited to tell somebody about this. I went to Achilles heel for dinner on Sunday, which has been a while since I've been there. Oh my gosh,
0: what a blast from the past.
2: I know. I love this restaurant. To me, this is such a warm weather in New York restaurant, even if I'm dining inside and the fire is going, which was happening on Sunday, but it's so close to the water in Greenpoint and it just kind of feels to me like a springtime restaurant and I had a really good dish which was piquillo peppers stuffed mm. with tuna salad.
0: Whoa. No so how big are these peppers cuz I think a piquillo is smaller but you must be like a larger style of piquillo, right?
2: Yeah, definitely like the big boy on the playground in terms of <laughs> a piquillo pepper, yeah. but not as big as a bell pepper. Maybe the size of my palm. Yeah. Uh but marinated spicy, tangy and stuffed with this very kind of mayo, but not in a gloppy way, mm. tuna salad. It was so good and it made me think about just wanting to make that as a like a party snack in the summer or maybe even like a picnic moment.
0: I love that. I mean, I feel like a stuffed pepper is something that we um actually think is pretty uncool. Yeah. As like a culture. We being the culture of food critics and people judging recipes by their covers.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's funny because a chili relleno is one of my, like, favorite foods also. I think that I'm very pro-stuffed pepper, but I'd never had a marinated pepper stuffed before. And to me, that was the surprise and delight of it all. Great
0: point there. You're talking about a marinated versus a raw. And I'm going to be clear. I love a stuffed pepper. I love a stuffed bell pepper. So no shade. Just, Just saying it's maybe not the coolest food. But the marinated pepper sounds delicious.
2: It's coming back. That's what I'm saying.
0: Achilles heel. I... They used to do like Sunday uh like dance part, like dance things there.
2: They used to like grill chicken on the sidewalk in the summer. Yeah. They've done a lot of different things. Yeah, it's a cool I place. just I just happened to to go uh, with our friend Pearl, which was really lovely. Right on. Yeah. Cool. yeah. 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 Well, what's your first thing?
0: Great segue from uh, The Tuna Fish is I have to call out my former colleague Anna Heasel's book Tin to Table. It is wonderful. It is such a good book.
2: What's the like breakdown of the book?
0: So she has written extensively about tinned and canned fish, conservas. I think she started her journey here at Taste when she was a senior editor. And it's a really clearly defined easy to use beautiful book it's not large in format which i think is perfect for this topic it actually has a die cut which means it actually is the cover is a shape of something which is a can of fish which is cool as hell and you know she starts by defining all the different um, canned fish and seafoods in our culture mackerel tuna uh, salmon she talks about salmon a lot and we have an episode coming up on the podcast where she joined me to talk about her love of canned salmon um, but then there are hella recipes. They're really good. Like the recipe development is so good in the book.
2: That makes me excited because I feel like the the conceit of tin fish in theory is that you don't have to do that much to it, right? That it's already in the can ready to yep. go. But I do think it's such a good ingredient for other things such as these piquillo stuffed peppers.
0: Agree. And I think it's to be clear, she, your point is, is sound. She re- refers to um, all the different conservas you can buy just to like put out on a platter and, and enjoy as we get into you know, warmer months out on the patio, out on your sidewalk, et cetera, et cetera. But the recipes that she covers are really smart. A couple that come to mind, she had a smoked salmon deviled egg. Whoa. Pretty cool. Great concept. She had a mac and mac, which is cold mac salad with white beans, lemon, and mackerel.
2: I love the sound of that. Dude,
0: mackerel is such an underrated fish. I think we've talked about that before. Buttery. Buttery, salty, but not too fishy enough. Definitely fishier good like you know i love a grilled mackerel but i love a canned mackerel mm-hmm. she also cracks the code on the combi tuna fish salad that's that restaurant in los angeles combi
2: oh you know are they no longer doing that sandwich also
0: they're no longer doing they're anything not doing
2: any sandwich so that's a, a good recipe to have
0: i agree they're literally not doing anything and this combi tuna fish salad includes light soy sauce mirin rice vinegar yuzu kosho yuzu kosho and tuna salad pretty good on milk bread Love it. Love it. What's your next thing?
2: My next thing is what I made for dinner last night, which is um, an Eric Kim recipe, a new one, our fave, uh, for gochujang buttered noodles.
0: Excellent use of gochujang.
2: Yeah, it was, um, I think part of a package he did reimagining ramen, instant ramen. I did use sun ramen, like the really good fresh ramen, so it was maybe... A little um, fancier than that. But the sauce is so good. You basically saute a lot of garlic. Yep. And then you add honey and I believe I use sherry vinegar. I think there's a couple vinegar options and just kind of cook it down until it's really glossy. And then you just add so much butter and mix it all together. And it was so. And when does the gochujang come in? Oh, I mean, I missed that part. The gochujang goes with (laughs) the honey and the vinegar. Okay, cool. All of them together. I think
0: that's what it seemed like you were going for. I love that.
2: Yeah. (sighs) Oh.
0: You know, honey and gojijan is something that has been cooked for a while. You know, I think it replaces mirin often in the, in the like, cl- classic East Asian larder. I think that honey is a great substitute. And um, as a beef marinade or a pork marinade, it can be good. But with Eric, these butter noodles sound dope. So good.
2: Yeah, they're really good. I added some trumpet mushrooms uh, just because I had those on Fancy. hand. I know. That's my one of my favorite mushrooms to cook yeah. with because they just, uh, they're so fun. And the texture is so good.
0: You have, like, a mushroom plug, though. Like like do you have like a you have like an infinite promo code, right?
2: Uh, no, I mean I wish. Smallhold, <laughs> if you're listening, I would take that. I yeah. just got
0: these from the key key food by my place, oh.
2: actually. But I do have a lot of um, smallhold dried
0: mushrooms on hand, which we can talk about at a later date. I feel like you should be sponsored by Smallhold.
2: I mean, I almost wear their shirt today. I'm going to have them on the podcast. They are, you are, which will be that. really fun because yeah. um, mushrooms are definitely one of my special interests. So definitely. I think that'll be a great one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: What's your next thing?
0: Well, I want to call another book Dan Adut's uh, Undercooked, and he's going to be a guest on the show. we in a future episode and I really get into a cool cool uh you know variety of topics. He's a an actor, a comedian. He's on the current season of Cobra Kai. But what I as I said in my intro to the to the episode to him, I didn't expect to like this book. I actually thought it would be not good, frankly. Hmm. Because like you get like actor guy like writing about food. And, you know, there's questions that pop in your head, like, why is this guy actually writing a book? But then you read it, and this book is, it's funny, it's its broken into great chapters, um, and honestly, he worked at the Spotted Pig during a very interesting time, he was actually an intern there, so he, like... We talk about it on the show, but he writes about it very extensively in the in the book. Um, and it's complicated, like his relationship with this like kind of cursed restaurant. Um, that's one element of many in this book that is like really engaging. This is a great book. I highly recommend it. Eliza, what is your final item? My final
2: item is, in addition to mushrooms, my other special interest is kombucha. And I feel like I'm always trying new kombuchas. And recently I went back to my roots in the Whole Food section, and I just had the GT's Gingerade kombucha, which I I think is one of the first kombuchas I've ever had, probably. Growing up in L.A., that was, like, the only kombucha available for a while, which was one of the epicenters of kombucha in the United States. I mean,
0: Erewhon's kombucha aisle really influenced the culture.
2: I can't even talk about that. Like I truly disassociate in the produce aisle and the refrigerated aisle these days because there's so many options. But I just went back to my classic kombucha and it was so good. It was so uh, not too sweet, really gingery, really fiery, really made me feel like I was doing something good for my gut, which is always a good feeling. Always a great feeling. Now,
0: GT, iconic brand, iconic labeling and packaging, of course.
2: And they've never changed it also, which (laughs) I I appreciate because I feel like they have reached OG status now.
0: Yeah, they definitely have. Question about kombucha. So when I drink it, I drink it from time to time. I'm actually sipping on a Ruby Sparkling Hibiscus, which is another great drink, maybe for a future three things. I get a little, I get, it's not lightheaded. I feel like there's something happening in my brain when I drink kombucha. Do you have that feeling?
2: Um... Uh, no, but I like that you do. I feel like I could probably spin that into something about the microbiome in your body and how everything is interconnected. Because I do know there have been studies that gut health and mood are really closely linked and also your whole body is kind of interacting together. So if I wanted to like maybe lean away from the science and just talk about uh, Touchy feely things like that. Maybe I'd say that <laughs> there is a very small amount of caffeine in kombucha. Yeah, but not not enough mm. really to register.
0: It's not a caffeine feeling. It's like it feels. It's not a lightheadedness, but it's a lightness and an effervescence.
2: Maybe it's the feeling of being better than everyone.
0: I guess so. That's what. And it's the feeling of spending nine dollars on a drink.
2: Yeah, that's, that's what the it real is. feeling. Yeah,
0: definitely. <laughs>
2: What's your last one?
0: My last item is just a general topic com- and, and kind of a statement. Hold your diners close. Meaning the diner that you go to and love, love it back even more because I'm seeing diners close all the time. And I had a recent experience where I went to a diner where it used to be decent and then it just the new ownership took over and it fell the fuck off. And it made me think diners are bad. Usually they can be very bad. So when you like a diner, go there and hold it close.
2: I like that. I think um, you don't know what you've got till it's gone downhill.
0: I agree you don't know what you got until you've lost it right until it's gone downhill and when you go to a bad diner that you just have to reflect on what makes a good diner and I think about the new superiority burger I hope there's I wish there was a bell every time we mentioned superiority burger on the show Brooks and I have been continually emailing and he's been continually delaying our interview. It's going to be great, though. One but, day. One day. But, you know, he is a little bit of a diner setup. up. Um, but New York is full of great diners. Does, do you have a favorite at all that comes to mind right away of, like, a, a diner in your neighborhood or somewhere in New York? You know, where I live in
2: Brooklyn, there aren't that many diners, which is kind of a bummer because I really like going to them. But I was recently talking to Emma Orlo uh, when we were, I think, off mic when she was recording an episode about how I went to the Court Square Diner yeah. in Long Island City and had a really great restorative 2 a.m meal there so that's what I'll shout out for now
0: um I really like the diner in Goshen near me um has some like sentimental memory from my wife and I tomorrow, but I think it's not the food isn't like perfect but I do like it and I need to go there more Pat do you have a favorite diner at all?
1: Um, So I took my in-laws this weekend. They were in town and took them to the Purity Diner near where I live in Park Slope, and it was good. We had good breakfast, solid pancakes and eggs, and, and that's
0: your order, yeah, yeah. Pancakes, totally. You're at a diner.
1: It's either breakfast food or burgers. Past that, I think. Ooh. Year. Is, do you disagree Would, are you are you the guy ordering lobster at a diner?
0: Definitely not. There there was a lobster on the menu at this new diner I went to, which scares the hell out of me. Um I'm not a burger at the diner guy. I like sandwiches. Club sandwiches. Oh, oh yeah, you could do sandwiches. Clubs like I like a BLT, I like a grilled cheese. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I like uh tuna fish. Yeah. Club. Yeah. Keep it simple though. Like burgers are good. I'm not gonna like I'm not judging, I just you know, not me. Yeah. Not
1: you. Yeah, I got it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a good purity diner or purity yep. two. Three blocks away.
0: Oh, cool. Do you have a favorite of the two? Uh purity because it is closer. And purity too, I think, is probably exactly the same. Sometimes thing. comes down to that. Shalia, what do you think about it? Do you have a favorite diner?
3: So similar to Pat, uh recently my parents and my godparents were in town. Um and my partners like lived in Astoria forever and forever. And we ended up taking them to Michael's on Broadway Mm -hmm. in Astoria. Um, And I love that place. It just has this, like, very old-school feel. It's, like, really, it's so much more spacious than you would think. Um, I don't know. And it's just, like, a nice environment. You don't feel rushed. Like, it feels like everyone who's been working there has, like, been there, like, since the 70s. Like, um, they also do, like, a really, really excellent Ruben. And then I think I had... I think I might have gotten a Greek omelet. That was oh yeah, perfect yeah. order.
0: A Greek omelet yeah. can't really find that in many places in the country. I feel Astoria is like yeah. where you're going to find a Greek omelet.
3: They also do like a like all inclusive like bottomless brunch for like something like twenty dollars, which like does not seem cost effective for me. But like mm-hmm. me and my mm-hmm. mother had a great
0: time. Let's so. go.
2: I love that. I like that you're talking about the vibe also because to me that's the most important thing when I'm going to a diner. The food can be fine, but I want a big red booth I can be with all of my people in mm-hmm. and have a lot of coffee and just not feel rushed. I don't know if I'd call it a diner, but Tom's Restaurant in Prospect Heights. Mm-hmm. It is kind of a diner. It's just a little small, but that's probably the one I go to the that's most. the guy? Yeah.
0: Hey, thanks for, uh, for talking three things, Eliza.
2: Anytime. Thanks to Pat and Shalia, too. <music>